The Old Testament reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Kings, beginning in the 19th chapter at the first verse. These things are written. Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. And Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. And when Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. And exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. And he ate the meal and went back to sleep. And the angel of God came back, shook him awake again, and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate, and drank his fill, and set out. And nourished by that meal, he walked forty days and nights, all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. And when he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him, so Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, said Elijah, and the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And then he was told, go stand on the mountain at attention before God, and God will pass by. And a hurricane wind whipped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. But God wasn't to be found in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. And when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak went to the mouth of the cave and stood there. And a quiet voice asked, So Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? And Elijah said it again, I've been working my heart out for God, the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your places of worship, and murdered your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. God said, go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael and make him king over Aram. Then anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, make him king over Israel. And finally anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahaloah, to exceed you, succeed you as prophet. Anyone who escapes death by Hazael will be killed by Yehu. And anyone who escapes death by Yehu will be killed by Elisha. Meanwhile, I'm preserving for myself 7,000 souls, the knees that haven't bowed to the god Baal, the mouths that haven't kissed his image.
And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Oh God, into your hands we offer our imaginations and feelings, our thoughts and concerns, our busy distractions. So take them now and keep them for us, so that we may now come to rest in your presence. And draw from us only what you need from us at this moment. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever listened to silence? You know, I wonder if there really is a place where silence can even be experienced. I can think of a few times that I've been totally alone, and I suppose silence would be a good description of what I thought I heard. But then a bird would sing, or a wind would blow, or a cricket chirp, or many other sounds that perhaps I long ago had taken for granted. Those shattered the silence and brought me the comfort of their noise. Because you see, I think the closer we get to silence, the more uncomfortable we often become. If you ever need a reminder that you are not alone, just attempt to experience silence. It's not an easy undertaking, but many lessons, I think, await in the pursuit of it. In 1972, David Milne Smith, an adventurer, author, and professional speaker, decided to spend a night alone in St. Michael's Cave on the island of Gibraltar as a test of his courage. And in his book, Hug the Monster, he tells of hearing strange sounds all around him as he lay there in the pitch dark, damp, deserted cave. Most frightening was the fact that he had come to believe that he was not alone. Fear became panic and he was afraid that he was losing his mind. And then suddenly, as he was approaching his psychological breaking point, Smith thought to himself, whatever the monster looks like, I will hug it. And that simple, almost silly thought brought great relief to his restless mind. And he soon fell into a sound and peaceful sleep until morning. He learned that embracing his fear, literally or figuratively, allowed him to subdue it. Now, Elijah was a tired, scared, hungry man. A man who more than once had looked death in the face with the faith and confidence that somehow, someway, God would deliver him from his circumstance. He was committed and determined, a faithful follower, a prophet, and he had delivered God's judgment to King Ahab and had watched as his prophecy of drought and famine came into being. He left the land and continued as a prophet in sight. And while there, he watched as God worked through him to provide bread and oil for Elijah and a widow and her son all through the drought. He had cried to God over the death of the same boy, and life was restored to him. Elijah later returned to the land after the 
drought and faced the king. And he challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel. He squared off with them on Mount Carmel. With all of Israel watching, the prophets of Baal called out to their god, but to no avail. Elijah taunted them, and they outnumbered him 450 to 1. Yet for all of their ranting and raving and gyrations of 450 men, they were no match for the power of God working through Elijah. And after God rained down fire on the altar Elijah had built, Elijah had the Israelites gather up the prophets of Baal, and he slaughtered them, all 450 of them. He then prophesied to King Ahab that the drought was over, and watched as a cloud looking like a hand rose from the sea, and a great rain fell on the land. And at this, Elijah ran 17 miles in front of Ahab's chariot, just to arrive at Jezreel before him. Jezebel, Ahab's queen, then threatened Elijah's life, and he ran. And he kept running until he arrived at Beersheba, folks, which is 130 miles south of Jezreel. And here he journeyed alone into the wilderness a day's journey, sat down, and simply stated, All right, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm really no better than my father. I hope you can see that Elijah was a man that lived in the grand scale of things. The encounters that I've just reported were large happenings, experiences of God on the grandest of scales. And Elijah comes across pretty well in all of these episodes. But a threat from a woman, and he flees. And after he sat down in the middle of the wilderness, Elijah fell asleep, and angels came and ministered to him and prepared him for a 40-day and night journey to Horeb, the holy mountain of God. And then we come to the most intriguing encounter, I think, because Elijah searched out God and was granted an audience with God. Elijah came to a cave and he lodged there and he set up camp. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God knew why Elijah was there. For God heard Elijah crying in the wilderness, asking her to believe of his responsibility as a prophet in Israel. But now God engages Elijah in conversation, and we're filled in on Elijah's problem. In fact, it is really a threefold complaint. First, he has been faithful to God, while Israel has not. The people have forsaken the covenant and slain the prophets with the sword. And finally, he feels that he is all alone and in great danger. And God answers by saying, Go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. But Elisha remains in the cave. You know, somewhere along the way, Elijah has lost his spark. His concerns, as voiced in this passage, they're all personal concerns. And uncharacteristically, he remains in the cave instead of obeying God's command to stand on the mount. Elijah, at this point, is just consumed by his noisy monsters. But then God passes by in the grandest of 
scales, a wind strong enough to break rocks, an earthquake and fire, bang, bang, bang. But the Lord was not in any of these outward shows. God was somehow absent. In the very instances that God had been present for Elijah in the past, and then the beauty of, after the fire, a still small voice. And the Hebrew here points to a silence, a marked contrast to the spectacle that precedes it. And we're now to know that God appears to Elijah in the silence. Isn't it ironic that in Elijah's moment of questioning his effectiveness, in fear and self-pity, he comes before God and is answered in a way which totally goes against his experience of God up to that point. And at the sound of the still small voice, the silence of God, Elijah covered his face and then moved to the cave entrance. And at the entrance, he is again greeted with the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? The fact that he had not obeyed God's command to stand on the mount is lost on Elijah. For unfazed, he simply repeats a series of three complaints. And Elijah, though he recognized the still small voice, apparently did not hear it because it seems to have little effect on him. He still did not respond to God's command. And we're presented with a beautiful illustration. For this time, God answers Elijah's complaint point by point and sets in plan a motion for Elijah to resign his prophetic commission and pass on his office to his successor. To Elijah's desire to retire, God names his successor. To the complaint of Israel's violence, God responds with the swords of Hazael and Yehu. To Elijah's claim of isolation, God answers that there are still thousands of faithful in the land. So after this encounter, Elijah returns and names his successor, Elijah. And at the completion of his task, his office and life have come full circle. Elijah, though, I think, never really learned to hug his monster. We each have nights of fear. We all encounter monsters of some sort. We may fear spiders or insects, heights or crowds, abandonment or loneliness, the future or even death. And most of us are occasionally visited by the shadows of these monsters in the dark and in the still of the night. But the good news of today is you are never alone. The next time that you're afraid, try hugging your monster. Face that fear head on, no matter what it is, and embrace it. And you just might be surprised at how quickly and quietly it slips away, and how confident you begin to feel again. You know, these small, often quiet, and deeply personal encounters are treasure chests. And they often hold the most amazing insights and the warmest affirmations. I love the God of grand displays. But I love a daily walk 
the God of quiet, confident, lovely assurance. So keep the faith and watch and listen for both. Just a couple more words. As many of you know, a group of us has just come back from the Holy Land. And the last time I talked about these things with them was just a couple days ago outside the garden, too. It is very interesting to me that a group of us traveled halfway around the world to really see empty spaces. We spent time around Capernaum, which was Jesus' adopted hometown. You can still see the ruins of the homes there. Peter's house has a church built over the top of it, as you might well imagine. But as we stood in Capernaum and looked at those houses, what remains of them, what ran through our minds in those empty spaces was the story of friends who carried another friend on a pallet and broke through a roof to lower him before Jesus. It happened in that empty place. We remember the centurion who sent friends ahead and said, don't even bother coming to my house. You don't have to do that. Just say the word. And I know that my servant will be saved. It happened in that empty space. We stood in the remains of the synagogue of Capernaum where we know Jesus taught, where the man with the withered hand was healed on the Sabbath. We stood there in that empty space with memories of what happened there. It was by the Sea of Galilee where there are stories of walking on water and stilling storms and tremendous catches of fish. You can look out over that water not many people are there. It's an empty space, but it rings with those stories for us. You know, we do worship the God of the empty space. The ancients knew this. If you remember, the seed of God was actually the empty space below the angel's wings that arced over the arch over the Ark of the Covenant. That was an empty space. It resided in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple, on the Temple Mount, which hardly anybody ever got to see. It was an empty space in an empty space. God is a God of the empty space. And perhaps more important, most importantly of all, we really traveled all that way to look into that empty tomb. Most of us just wanted to make sure it was empty. And this much I know for sure this morning, as Oprah would say, that the empty space we looked into all the way, halfway across the world in a tomb is exactly what your tomb will look like and my tomb will look like. We worship God empty space, but it is holy. And oh 